Old Testament lesson comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Whenever I think about the relationship between prayer and the gospel, my mind always goes to 1 Chronicles 29. That just may reflect how strange my mind is. But this is where David is preparing to build the temple. Solomon is the one who will build it. He's got all the preparations made. And he prays because of what God is doing. And, he, and so listen, uh, listen to how David prays in First Chronicles 29. Hear the word of the Lord. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom, God, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord then the leaders of the father's houses made their freewill offerings as did also the leaders of the tribes the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the officers over the king's work they gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold 10,000 talents of silver 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron and whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Yehiel the Gershonite then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings, and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. 
And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. This is the word of the Lord. So what's going on here? David's about to die. He has made all the preparations for Solomon to build the temple. But there's one thing missing. There's one thing i got to do. You can work on your situation any way you please. But there'll never be a substitute for working on your knees. Uh, we've been seeing this throughout book one of the Psalms. And we'll see it again as we turn to First Thessalonians. Because prayer is what has to be everywhere in everything we do. And I want you to see, this is what David does in First Chronicles 29. He starts by remembering who God is. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. Yours is the kingdom. This is where our, the Lord's Prayer will have get its conclusion from. That David's greater son would have this line from his great-great-grandfather's prayer added to the end of his prayer. Because this is... What the Lord prays for his people and prays... Because David says, but, but who am I? And what is my people? All things come from you. Of your own have we given you. How, how can man give to God? Well, what happens is when we are reconciled to God, when God brings us to himself, when we are restored to fellowship with the living God, then everything else in life begins to come back together again. We saw this in the psalm series, how the, the four relationships are, are, everything else is rooted in our relationship to God, our relationship with others, our relationship to creation, our relationship to ourselves. We're disintegrating as long as we're not rightly related to God. But when we are rightly related to God, everything else begins to come back together. And I say, begins. It's not an instantaneous process instantaneous moment it's a process David himself had a, an uneven path if you recall the story of David but David isn't talking about his own greatness the greatness of the gospel is not found in how great we are the greatness of the gospel is found in the greatness of God indeed as Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians the greatness of his electing love for us in Jesus Christ Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Today we turn to 1 Thessalonians, one of Paul's earliest epistles. It's it's written to a church that's only a few months old. Uh, Paul had been hurried out of the city due to threats from the Jewish community. So he's eager to communicate with this fledgling group of believers. And partly because Paul had only been in Thessalonica for a few weeks, it seems clear that what Paul wants to communicate to them are some of the things that are just really important at the base foundation of the gospel. So this is not going to be one of the letters where Paul goes into lots of sort of deep things. He's going to, he wants to get at what are the basic things that these new believers, because remember, the Christian church has only existed for maybe 15, 18 years since Pentecost. So this has been, this is a very short time. And there were very few Christians in the whole world. So, sort of, there's no such thing as an old established church with, you know, lots of experience. I mean, sure, in one sense, those who had been grown up in the faith in, in, uh, uh, as, Jew, as Jews, for them, believing in Jesus is a very, you, you basically, you take everything you've already known and, oh my goodness, it's about him. So, in one sense, there's a, there's a lot of wise people and for that matter, as we think about the God-fearers, there are many of these Gentiles who have, who have come to faith in Thessalonica. Many of them would have been hanging around the synagogue all their lives. They would have been hearing the scriptures. So when I say the, the church is brand new, it's not that these people had no background. It's rather, this is sort of seeing this about who Jesus is and what that means for everything was new. And for us to think about, because I think sometimes we kind of get in a, oh, we know. Do we? It's useful for us to go back to, well, what did Paul say are those basic things, those most important things that if you're going to follow Jesus, this is what you need to hear. And that's what Paul will do in First Thessalonians. At the heart of his concern is to encourage the Thessalonians to continue in faith, hope, and love. It's a triad that will play a key role in Paul's writings for the rest of his life. And it's worth noting that while Paul often uses the first person singular in his epistles, 1 Thessalonians is almost entirely first person plural, we. So we should take his opening seriously. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are the we. Now, Silvanus and Timothy, or Silvanus is often called Silas, uh, I would suggest they are tr- true co-authors in this epistle because they have just come from Thessalonica. So they were just there, and they have now come to Paul and are reporting, so they're, they understand the situation on the ground, and so Paul is relying heavily on them for what is it that they need to hear now. So their, their role in shaping the letter is very important. 
But it's also worth noting that while Paul often refers to himself as an apostle or as a servant of Christ Jesus, here he simply identifies himself as Paul. In one sense, the Thessalonian church is so new, I'm not going to bother with titles here. Just Paul. And so he writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he oftentimes will write to all the saints in a particular place. Here he says to the church of the Thessalonians. He's highlighting the fact that they have been brought together. The church is the ecclesia, the, the assembly. This, the, the, this is those who have been brought together. And uh, as we hear in the book of Acts, they've been brought together from disparate backgrounds. And he's saying, you are now, you are the church of of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the way that, as, when Paul describes later on in the epistle the context in which he's writing, we can actually see ex- pretty much exactly when he writes this. He had planted the church in Thessalonica in about 49 or 50 AD, and now the events that he's talking about as just happening happened in the next year. So he's writing not more than 18 months after their conversion. And so this is a very short time span that we're talking about. And Acts 17 tells us the story of the founding of the church in Thessalonica. So if you turn over to Acts 17 in verse 1, uh, I'd like to just show you, here's, you know, if you want to know who is this church of the Thessalonians that he's writing to, we actually know something about them from Acts 17. In Acts 17, Luke tells us, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So notice, Paul's there for three weeks, and he goes into the synagogue, Every, every Sabbath day, and reasons with them from the scriptures. Um, this, uh, the Sabbath gatherings in the synagogue at, at that time were not considered worship services. Uh, you you worship in the temple. Um, Sabbath gatherings are teaching times and discussion times. That's why, if you think about it, you know, reasoning with them from the scriptures, uh, reasoning is, is is the idea of dialoguing. So, you know, it's, this, is not, this is not sermons that he's preaching in the worship service. This is a, they're, they're re, going through the scriptures, debating, discussing, working through what do the scriptures say about the Christ, the Messiah. So he does that for three weeks. And some of them, verse 4, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So you can see a snapshot of the people to whom Paul is writing. There are some Jews who believe that Jesus is, in fact, their Messiah, the Christ. And there are a great many devout Greeks. That's why, that's why at the end of chapter 1, Paul will say that you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That most of the Thessalonian congregation are Gentiles, but Gentiles who had been hanging around the synagogue, uh, the term for them was God-fearers. These, these are Gentiles who, they don't want to get circumcised, that feels a little <clears throat> extreme, um, but they really like what they're hearing about 
the God of the Old Testament. They, they, they hear the Law of Moses. They hear the Psalms. They hear the, the, the prophets. And they're like, we like this teaching better than our traditional Roman religion and philosophy. It makes more sense. But for many God-fearers, there was this sort of like, but what does this have to do with us? There, yeah, we see, we see this promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed, but how does the blessing of Abraham come to the Gentiles? And as long as they're just attending the synagogue and hearing traditional Jewish te- teaching, it sounds like, well, okay, we could get circumcised and become Jews, but we're, we're not Jews, and I guess we, is that what we have? So there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot of people who are saying, what do we do with this? And when Paul comes and reasons from the scriptures and debates and disputes and works through as they go back and forth, a whole lot of these people are saying, Ah, Jesus is the Christ. If the Christ is the one who brings the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles, and so this is where, this is where yes, in Romans, in Galatians, in other places, Paul will, and Ephesians, Paul will talk, work through those principles. But, this is where what Paul's writing to with these Thessalonians is they're coming to they've, they've turned from idols to the living and true God and now they're asking okay so what is it that it, what, does it, what does it look like for us now because notice what happens Acts 17 goes on to say in verse 5 but the Jews were jealous so in other words the majority of the synagogue did not convert And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, one of the converts, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You can see something of what the Thessalonians are up against. There's, there is a strong Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica that is hostile. And whether you're a Jew who had converted to Christ, or whether you're a Gentile who had been a God-fearer attending that synagogue, relationships have been broken... And now you are kind of isolated. It's a relatively small group. We don't know how many, but there's a relatively small group. You've lost your connection to the synagogue. They're against you. And now the synagogue is trying to raise the rest of the city against you. So whatever non-Jewish relations and connections you had are now also in jeopardy. What does it mean to follow Jesus like that? Paul only spent a few weeks. I mean, verse 10 says that they, the brothers immediately said, sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So why is he writing this letter? It's like, I didn't really get to finish your basic instruction. I want you to know, here are the things. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And what, is, what are we talking about in terms of our hope? What are we talking about in terms of where are we going? Why are we doing this? And the nature of the opposition becomes even clearer in the next verses because not only do they oppose Paul's teaching in Thessalonica but when they hear that he's teaching elsewhere the the synagogue sends representatives to to follow Paul and hound him and make sure that everybody knows don't listen to this guy they're sending delegates to other cities 
And so you can imagine how vigorously they're opposing Paul's teaching in their own city. And at the beginning of Acts 18, we hear that Silas and Timothy then will come from Macedonia and join Paul in Corinth. Thessalonica is one of the leading cities in Macedonia. So 1 Thessalonians is plainly written from Corinth, now that Timothy has come to us from you. Chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians. And then finally in Acts 20, we'll hear that, that Paul gets to visit the Thessalonians like he says he wanted to. But long after this letter was written. So Paul is writing to a church that is a baby church under tremendous pressure from every side. What are you going to do? Notice where he starts. Grace to you and peace. Yeah. The standard Greek greeting was Kyrene, greetings. Here Paul says Karas, grace. The standard Hebrew greeting was Shalom, peace. Here he says Irene, peace. Grace and peace. It's a, in one sense the standard Greek greeting with a twist from greetings to grace. And the standard Hebrew greeting of peace woven together into the Christian greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace pretty much summarize the entirety of Paul's gospel. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. The grace of God has been revealed in these last days in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the peace of God rules. The shalom, the well-being of his kingdom is already beginning to take root in our hearts and lives even though it doesn't feel like it right now in Thessalonica. It may not feel like it right now in your life. But the peace of God is already beginning to take root. And for this reason, Paul gives thanks. We give thanks, verse 2, to God always, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. This is the way Paul opens all of his letters except Galatians. In ordinary circumstances, Paul begins by giving thanks. There's a reason why he doesn't do that in Galatians. And this is a pattern that we need to take seriously in our own lives, in our own prayers. Giving thanks to God for all of you. Do you do this in your prayers? Do you give thanks to God? Not just, I mean, we should always give thanks to God for what he has done in salvation. Absolutely. How often do we give thanks to God for others in our prayers? Just let's think about that because it needs to be a pattern and a habit in our lives. And and here's where I will admit I have fallen short because not only does Paul do it, not only does he actually give thanks to God for the Thessalonian church, he also tells them he's doing it. I will tell you now, I regularly give thanks to God for you. But I don't tell you often enough, so I want to work on that. Because, because, why? After all, what's he giving thanks for? He's not just generic. He gets specific. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul thank God for? Not just thank you Lord for saving the Thessalonians. 
But thank you, Lord, for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's Paul saying? Well, faith, hope, and love are woven together over and over in Paul's epistles, and not just Paul, First Peter does it too. Now, when you think of faith, hope, and love, probably if, you, if you're familiar with the New Testament, your mind goes first to, thir- to First Corinthians 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But if you think about how these words connect, it's everywhere. Romans 5 says that we've been justified by faith, and so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 5 and 6 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Ephesians 1, 15 to 18, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and so I pray that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I could keep going for a while. It's in almost every epistle Paul writes. What's he doing? Paul will bring together faith, hope, and love three times in 1 Thessalonians. Here in verse 3, where we might be tempted to pass over it. It's just his opening greeting. (laughs) Always watch Paul's opening greetings. His opening greeting is invariably the center point he's trying to communicate to to the people he's writing to. Always pay attention to that opening greeting. And again at the end of chapter 3, now admittedly he doesn't use the word hope there, but the concept is plastered all over the end of chapter 3. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, where he weaves faith, hope, and love into the armor of God. And so that means that at the beginning, and at the end, and at the middle, faith, hope, and love is what Paul's talking to them about. So his opening prayer is by no means a throwaway line. He is praying for the very thing that he most wants to see. And what he most wants to see is for the Thessalonian Christians, for you, to continue to grow in faith, hope, and love. Okay, what does that mean? Paul speaks here of your work of faith... People sometimes get confused by this because Paul sometimes contrasts faith and works. But the work of faith is precisely to believe God, even when things look impossible. Is there something in your life that feels impossible right now? Is there something in your life where you look at it and you're like, I, there's no way, there's no way this is going to... This is, I, don't, I don't know. The work of faith is to recognize that this trial, these afflictions, are what God is using to conform us to the likeness of His Son. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it this way, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. I use the old translation substance because Hebrews 11 is intentionally referring back to Hebrews 1 verse 3 which said that Christ is the exact imprint of God's substance. Same word. So when he says faith is the substance of things hoped for, he wants you to see just like Christ is the substance of the Father. You could say it this way. 
Faith is the underlying reality of things hoped for, just like Christ is the exact imprint of God's underlying reality. Faith is always focused on Jesus. Faith is always focused on the one who joined himself to our humanity so that he might join us to God. The work of faith is holding fast to Christ, believing him, trusting him, even when all around you seems hopeless. Like we've seen when Paul writes this letter, the Thessalonian Christians have been Christians for less than two years. The Christian church is only 15 years old. There are only a few thousand Christians in the whole world. And now the Jewish community in Thessalonica has condemned you. The Gentiles think that you're ridiculous for believing that crazy lunatic Paul. And I have to ask us to think seriously if we're living in Thessalonica at that time. You're going to believe that in that little tiny insignificant little bitty itty group. I mean, you're going to believe you're going to believe that guy? I mean, the Jewish authorities have condemned him. The Gentiles think he, think he's a nut. And you're going to follow that. The work of faith is holding fast to Christ, believing Him, trusting Him, when everything else seems impossible. The work of faith can be hard work sometimes. And that's why Paul always pairs faith and love. The work of faith is connected to the labor of love, or Paul's term in Galatians, faith working by love. When Paul links faith, hope, and love, he usually focuses on our love for God and for one, in, for one another. But sometimes he reminds us that our love is rooted in God's love for us. I mentioned Romans 5 earlier. Let me read Romans 5, 1 through 5 to you. Listen for how Paul weaves together faith, hope, and love. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here it is not our love that motivates us, but God's love motivates our faith and hope. Our labor of love is enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is the love of God who has been poured into your hearts because God is love. And when the God who is love is poured into your heart, then you also begin to love. This is why the work of faith, believing in God even when it's hard, and the labor of love, loving one another even when it's hard, can only happen when we have the third leg of our stool. Got a two-legged stool? Yeah, <laughs> that's not a stool. It's going to fall over. You need hope. Your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, which is the greatest, faith, hope, or love? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love is the greatest of the three, 
But when does he say love is the greatest of the three? Well, when Christ returns, faith will become sight. You won't need, I mean, you'll see him as he is. Our hope will no longer be hope, but present reality. Who hopes for what he already has? So in the new creation, love is the greatest of the three. Now, in Romans 5 that we just read, I would argue that Paul is saying that, that faith is the greatest of the three. Because faith unites us to Christ. By faith we have been justified. By faith we have access to God. I mean, without faith, nothing else happens. So when it comes to the beginning of the Christian life, faith is the greatest of the three. At the end of the Christian life, love is the greatest of the three. But what is it that gets you from faith to love? What is it that sustains you, that enables you to keep going in faith and love? And it's not like you ever abandon any of the three. But what is it that keeps you going? Yeah, hope. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, and 5, the greatest of these is hope. Faith gives us access to God. Love endures through all eternity. But how do we get from here to there? If you lose faith or if you stop loving, you, you won't have hope. But what enables us to endure, that's the idea of steadfastness. What is it that you hold on to when the world is crashing down around you? Your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is your hope? What is it that you hold on to when everything's crashing down? What, is it that, what, is it that, that, what, what motivates you to do the things you do? Some people are motivated by a paycheck. I hope I'll get a paycheck. And so they go to work and they do the things in hope of getting paid. Some people are motivated by what people think of them. I hope they notice what I did. But if I'm motivated by what I get, or if I'm motivated by how I feel, then my hope, the thing that drives me, is centered on myself. And that is not a hope that can endure. That is a hope, every self-centered hope is a hope that will fail me. There is only one hope that will not fail. There is one future that will endure. Your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what will hope in Jesus mean for you tomorrow? When you go to work, when you're doing your schoolwork, when you're fixing dinner, when you're talking with your friends. What does it mean to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you know that King Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He has already poured out his Holy Spirit upon you, joining you to himself, so that you have been joined to his life. Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ means that in what you are doing at every moment, you are connected to Jesus, and he is at work in you. As Paul says in Philippians, I am, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the hope. That's the forward-looking, this is where we're going. That's what I'm longing for. That's what I'm looking forward to. And so in my interactions, I'm not 
looking at, oh, how can I make things, do things? It's, this is where I'm going. This is where everything is going. This is where the people around me are going. How do we walk there, go there together? So I will keep on believing God in my work of faith. I will keep on loving God and neighbor in my labor of love because of my steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul remembers this about you and then expresses his confidence, his gospel confidence, in why he's so sure of this. We know this. How do we know this? Well, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know it? Because he said so in his word, and he has promised, and he is faithful. How do I know that God has loved you? Because you believe the gospel. How do I know that God has chosen you? Because of your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who continue in faith, hope, and love demonstrate that they are the ones loved by God, elect from all eternity. Paul is not making the statement that every individual in Thessalonica is elect. But he is saying that God has elected us in love. He chose us. We did not choose him. God's election, God's choosing of us, is not based on anything in us. Rather, as Luke says in Acts 13.48, when Paul preached the gospel, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. When the gospel goes forth, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those who hear, and those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Now, if, if you hear that and say, but, but what about everybody else? Well, go preach the gospel to them so that they might believe too. I mean, that's... We are not the Holy Spirit. We are those called to bring the good news of Jesus to the nations. And look at the reason Paul gives in verse 5 for how he knows that they are elect and loved. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Many have noted that Paul uses another threefold pattern here, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, which could also be translated full assurance, that's a most certain confidence. And he doesn't go into details about what he means by these terms necessarily. Some think he's referring to miraculous signs, maybe, although Acts 17 doesn't mention any. Others think it refers to powerful preaching and the remarkable transformation of the Thessalonian Christians. But notice what happens when we overlay verse 5 with verse 3. The work of faith connected to the power of the gospel. The labor of love connected to the Holy Spirit's presence. The steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ connected to the full conviction, the full assurance of the gospel. When Paul uses two triads back to back, very often he's connecting them. Because what Paul is saying is that the gospel comes to you not just as a piece of intellectual information, not merely in word. The gospel comes to you in power. And that power is the power to carry on the work of faith in the midst of trial and suffering. The gospel comes to you in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who comes to you as the presence of the God who is love in order that you might continue in your labor of love. 
And the gospel comes to you in full conviction, full assurance of that hope, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel comes to you through the ministry of just vessels of, 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 of clay, through the, the ministry of the word, which Paul says at the end of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul is not afraid to say, look at us, look at our character. We are those who have been changed by the same gospel that we preach. He had told the Galatians, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But the power of God is able to transform the lives of those who believe this gospel. And so Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And he'll go into detail on that in chapter 2, so we don't need to do that today. But his opening point is that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, changes us. And you can see that fruit. And you can walk in that same path. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. When we are joined to the life of God by His Holy Spirit, the result is that we are changed. Not instantaneously, but in that long, slow process of sanctification that we become more and more what we are called to be. And so when Paul says that he and Silas and Timothy lived exemplary lives before the Thessalonians, he doesn't mean they were perfect. He doesn't mean they were sinless. He means that he and Silas and Timothy lived the gospel before them. That when they sinned, they repented, they forgave each other, they kept walking together. That is what we as your elders seek to do. We seek to demonstrate the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ as we walk before you. Oh Lord our God, have mercy on us. Help us that we might walk before you as your people, as those who are joined to the life of your Son, that we might maintain that work of faith, that labor of love, that steadfastness of hope in Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, grant that in all that we do and say and think, we might keep our eyes fixed upon him who sits at your right hand. For we pray in his name. Amen.